Good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday, folks. My name is Pete. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm super glad that you are here, too. I have been very encouraged in the last few weeks. We seem to have more and more folks coming back from COVID, more folks visiting and joining us. And I love that this is happening as we head into Easter, the greatest celebration on the Christian calendar. And I hope that you will be praying with me about who we can invite to our Easter services. I pray about who can I invite to Easter services because inviting people is intimidating. It's like scary, right? And so maybe if we pray and ask God for help, God will empower us to invite the people that God wants to bring to the church on Easter. I am looking forward to seeing who comes. So as I was preparing the message this week, I was also reading our Theology Pub book, which is currently When Everything is on Fire by Brian Zond. Theology Pub is our monthly book club you are invited to join. Yes, you. We would be super happy to have you come. We read a book every month. It has something to do with God. It's usually available in the bookstore, you know, bookshelves right outside here. And then we meet at Lone Oak Grill and talk about it. It is for everyone, whether you're a scholar or an interested or a half-interested reader. It's just for people who want to learn and grow with other people who also care. This month's book is about people who are going through deconstruction. This has been sweeping through the Christian world, especially the evangelical or formerly evangelical parts of the church. Deconstruction happens when someone discovers, hey, a lot of what I've been taught about Jesus and the Bible and faith is not true and does not work. A whole bunch of people who've been experiencing this revelation then go through a years-long process of letting go of what's been unhelpful and looking for something to take its place. And for some, unfortunately, that means abandoning faith altogether. For most of the folks I know who've been through that, it's been a slow, painful process of rebuilding a faith that in the end has a lot more room for questions and a lot less certainty than before they went through this process. This month's book had something very helpful to me in it. I will offer it to you today. The author said that his, in his experience, people can go through three stages of relating to the Bible. In the first stage, which we might experience in Sunday school or often in fundamentalist or evangelical churches, the important thing about the Bible is that everything is literal. Everything. Six-day creation, a flood-covered Mount Everest, and so on. This kind of reading has some advantages because the Bible contains some of the greatest wisdom literature of the last 3,000 years, which can be incredibly helpful in our world today where wisdom is a little hard to come by. You're not going to find it on the news. This literal reading can introduce you to God, who we know through Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus is the exact representation of who God is, which is mind-blowing when you think about how good and kind and loving Jesus is. And the literal reading can help us lay a strong foundation. And to be clear, tons of the Bible is meant to be literal. Jesus Christ is alive. But this kind of reading is also problematic because a whole bunch of the Bible is not intended literally. When Jesus said, behold, the mustard seed, which is the smallest seed in the garden, he knew mint seeds existed. He teaches about mint seeds elsewhere, and they are smaller. He's being hyperbolic. To be even more uh, clear, when Jesus said, if your hand or eye cause you to sin, chop them off, he was not intending that you would do that. If you leave later and sin, please don't do that, okay? 
Jesus is using hyperbole, a popular teaching method in Jewish literature and culture. And so for these reasons and others, I moved from the literal stage to what our author calls the analytical stage in my 20s. And this is the stage a lot of seminaries special in. This is where you study the historical context of scripture and you read commentaries about the scripture and you build up a body of knowledge about the Bible. This is where you get into translation issues, similarities and differences between the creation and flood story of Israel and the creation and flood stories of the cultures near them. And in this stage, it can really be helpful as you learn what the Bible is intended to mean. At our best in this stage, we learn more about who God is and who we are and what the Bible meant in its original context and how that applies to our everyday lives. But ultimately, this stage can also be problematic. It is possible to build up so much knowledge about the Bible that we stop experiencing God's presence in the Bible. We can get so sure of our translations and rules and ideas that there's no room for the Holy Spirit to break in through our rules and into our lives. Learning what the Bible means is helpful, and it is no replacement for a relationship with the God of the Bible. Without knowing the resurrected Jesus, you have missed out on the most important thing. John Wimber founded the vineyard as we know it, and he used to say the Bible is like a menu at a really great restaurant. It shows you what's available, but do not eat the menu. You use it to get to the food. So many people going through deconstruction have been living in literality or analysis. They've taken the Bible entirely word for word, or they've analyzed it to death. And for most people, these stages don't work forever. If you're in one of these stages today, I'm not here to talk you out of it. But I see a lot of people losing their faith because they need something more than literality or analysis. And for those folks, there is a third way to relate to scripture. Brian Zond calls this the mystical stage. I call it the experiential stage. In part, it starts with accepting that the Bible is full of mystery, just like the universe and our own darn heart. And in this stage, the goal of reading the Bible is to have a revelation of God or a revelation about ourselves and our fellow humans. Revelation is something revealed by God. And so we're reading not just for facts, but for truth, which is deeper and ironically more reliable. We're reading to experience life with God. The truth of Scripture is that all the Bible points to Jesus, who is alive right now. The Bible is not meant to be a collection of facts and ideas. It's meant to bring us into relationship with the living person of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. This is the stage of relating the Bi to the Bible that I'm just entering into. I'm entering into it from having analyzed a lot of it to death. My seminary experience has really challenged me pretty relentlessly to meet God in everything, and I feel like I'm finally ready to approach the Bible with new eyes instead of eyes that already know so much about everything before I start. And so I hope I'm ready to meet God through the Word today. I'm not asking you to leave one stage for another, but I am inviting you to join me in experiencing a well-known biblical story through the lens of mystery and experience. And so we're going to turn to Luke 15. We're going to start with the introduction in verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to go to the story of the prodigal son, which is a super well-known story. 
And so let's be open today to experiencing God's presence in the word. I'll pray toward that end. God, I thank you for sending us the living word in Christ. And I thank you also for giving us the written word in scripture. (coughs) God, it's our hope to experience the two together. I ask that you would penetrate through the stuff we have that gets in the way of knowing you through the words that you share with us today. Amen. All right, Luke 15, verse 1. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus preach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. All right, so in Jesus' time, just like today, the religious leaders and the wrong kind of people did not have a lot to do with each other. And Jesus came with all the freedom in the world. He could have spent his time with whoever he wanted to. And he wound up spending a ton of his time with tax collectors and notorious sinners of his day. He developed a bad reputation that's mentioned several times in the Gospels. He was preaching a message of forgiveness and freedom, and that message did not resonate with the religious types. And so they just started complaining about him. And he hears this, and in response, he teaches three stories. We're going to skip two of them today, the first two, which are excellent because of the interests of time. And so I want to encourage you to read Luke 15 on your own this week. It's one of the tips at the end of the sermon, and you can see what they're about. It's two short stories. We're going to go straight to the story that is often called the story of the prodigal son in verse 11. And as we read, I'll make some observations along the way, but we're going to save the main teaching for after we've read the story. So Luke 15, verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. And so his father agreed to divide his wealth between his two sons. I want to stop here and point out, this is super rude. There is no culture in the history of the world where it is okay to look at your dad and go, I don't want to wait till you die. Can I just have all your stuff now? Really? Can you imagine saying that to your dad, any of you, your mom? How are they going to handle that? It's like not going to go super good, right? They're going to be super upset with that. But what does the father do in this story? He says, okay, I'm going to give you half of everything that I have. Verse 13, a few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. We'll see some more details about that later. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And the young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. The son is demonstrating here one meaning of the word prodigal, which means spending recklessly. And so he's taken all his inheritance from the father. He has squandered it completely, and he's starving. Verse 17, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as your hired servant. And so the son comes up with a plan to go somewhere where he will be better off than the local pigs, right? And it means going home where he's going to volunteer to serve. Verse 20, and so he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, 
filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. He's rehearsed these words, and he's about to offer to be a servant in his father's land. Verse 22, but his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead. And he has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And so the party began. And this could have been the end of the story if the prodigal son was the point of this story. This is all we need for the prodigal son part. But that is not the point of this story. There is more. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants, what was going on? Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fatted calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry, and he wouldn't go in. And so his father came out and begged him. But he replied, all these years, I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has now come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. This story isn't about one son who misses out on his father's love. There are two sons missing out on the father's love in this story. The first misses out because he has to break all the rules. He doesn't want to wait for his father to die. He doesn't want to live wisely. He doesn't want to work on the farm. He wants to spend everything on short-term pleasures that fade in the end. Some of us are like the prodigal son in this way. I asked this question in first service, and it was a minority. How many of us are younger son people in second service today? Anybody besides me? Oh, just a few today. Anybody else? Stick your hand up if you've got to break the rules in order to figure out what to do with yourself. Okay, good. It's nice to know there's not just me. Some of us have struggled to follow the rules and learn from the wisdom of others or to focus on long-term pleasure instead of short-term pleasure. If that's you, you are my people. I was a drug addict for exactly these reasons. And many of us here know exactly how that life turns out. It turns out desperate. It just doesn't lead to good places. And Jesus is sharing a really great miracle here. No matter how far you have gone from God, you are always welcome home. You can come back home feeling full of shame. God's going to cut you right off. He's going to celebrate your return with a party. You might think you've ruined any chance of being God's daughter or son if you could just be the lowest servant. But that is not possible because God loves you with a forever love as his son or daughter, and there is nothing you can do to opt out of the love of God. 
And so one message of this story is that God forgives and welcomes home. But there is another son here and another message. The first son broke all the rules. The second son followed all the rules. How did that turn out for him? Well, this is a story that ends up in a fantastic party thrown by the father. And which son is missing out on the party? It's the rule follower, the older son. There are two ways to avoid God's love, both of which focus on the rules, the law. You can miss out on God's love by leaving God's ways and breaking all the rules, and everybody will know about it. Everybody will have opinions on what you are doing right now, right? This one's obvious that you're missing God's love. But the older son misses out on God's love in a different way. He follows the rules so closely, he thinks he deserves better than God's love. He thinks he deserves more. He thinks he knows better than God. He doesn't approve of God's love. He thinks the rules mean that if you break the rules, you're not loved anymore. And so maybe he's been obeying even out of fear. And he doesn't respond to the brother's return with love himself. His rule following led to anger and unforgiveness and resentment. And that led him to skip out on one of the great expressions of the father's love. The first son ends this story wrapped up in an amazing party. The second son ends this story on a question mark. Will he forgive and come into God's party? I hope that he will. I hope that we all will. I hope that all of us, and we all have a little bit of both these sons in our lives, I hope that all of us will be willing to let go of insisting on what we deserve and let God be generous and love everybody and welcome everybody home. Because there are people hiding from God's love by breaking the rules. And there are people hiding from God's love by following them. And Jesus doesn't want us to do either one. That's why he shares this story. Jesus saw the Pharisees getting upset. That's what inspired this story, because he was welcoming tax collectors and sinners. But Jesus does not rail at them like he does in Matthew 23 elsewhere. Instead, Jesus reaches out toward them. He tells them a story about a notorious sinner and a deep rule follower because that covers everybody around him and it covers all of us too. Because the main point here is for all of us. The most important part of this story is not the sons, it is the father who represents God. Jesus is telling us something deep and powerful. If you are busy breaking all the rules, God is watching out for you every day. God is looking to see you even turn and start coming down the road back toward him. And when you do, he will run toward you. You can break the rules worse than anyone around, but if you turn toward God, that's what's going to happen. You can come up with all kinds of apologies, but God's just going to wrap you up in an embrace. And the father has the same love for rule followers. He is so excited about his son that he's throwing the greatest party of his life, but he's not going to stay in the party without his beloved older son. When the rule follower leaves the party, the father leaves the party too and goes after him. The son and the father have spent all kinds of time together, and the father challenges the son, how about sharing in my love? How about coming back into the party? Forgive and let go, and let's go love your brother together. There is a second meaning of the word prodigal, and that meaning is wildly extravagant. And for that reason, writer and pastor Tim Keller and others 
have called this story the story of the prodigal God because God's love is wildly extravagant. And God's love is just as much for you if you're a rule breaker or a rule follower. God doesn't want you to miss out on the party, the kingdom of heaven coming to us here on earth, breaking into this world. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's inviting you today, come into my house, share everything that I have. Be my son, be my daughter for the rest of your life. That is what Easter is about. When we do the work of inviting people to come for Easter, we are demonstrating the love of the Father who chases after his kids. I hope that you will take God's invitation to you today to heart. I'm going to invite us to make a physical response to the message today. If you are ready to say yes to God's invitation today, I invite you to stand with me as you are able. If you're not able, if you just don't want to, feel free to sit down. But as you are able and as you would like to respond to the message, I invite you to stand and the worship team to come back forward at this time. As promised, we have three tips, something to read, pray, and do to put the Word of God into practice this week. Tip number three is questionable. I encourage you to consider it in your heart. Tip number one, read Luke 15. We are very into reading the Bible here, right? You might be in all kinds of different stages, but the important part here is actually getting into the Word of God. Read it. You'll get the two stories we missed, both of which highlight the point that we're preaching today. It's great. Tip number two, pray and ask God to heal your relationship with the rules, with the law. God gave the law for good, but we turn it around into bad real fast. And so I just invite you to pray, God, help me to be healed from turning to the rules instead of to your law. Tip number three, here's the questionable one. If you're a rule follower, ask God if there's a rule he would have you break. I'll give you a super safe example, but God might be radical and it might not be safe like this. You know, I have a rule. Kids in bed by nine, don't I, girls? They say 9.30. They're like, no, Dad, no. Ah, right? What happens when your kid's crying and it's nine o'clock? What do you do? You spend some time with your kid or you tell them to go to bed? I know sometimes I've told them to go to bed. Sometimes I'm the older son, right? And so I just want to encourage you. Pray and ask God, God, is there a rule you'd have me break? Because I like to follow your rules, but I want to listen to your voice. If you are a rule breaker, pray and ask God, God, is there a rule I should be following? And if you're a rule breaker, the answer is yes, there's 80 of them. And all your friends tell you what they are. Eat less, stop smoking, exercise, blah, 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 right? Here's the deal. You can listen to your friends and you're going to get tired out real fast. I want to encourage you to pray and ask God, God, is there a rule you would have me follow? There's a great verse in scripture that I really believe God is working in us, giving us the desire and the power to do what pleases him. When God asks us to do something, God empowers us to follow along. That's the miracle of experiencing God through the word instead of trying to take the word and do it all on our own. And so ask God, is there a rule you'd have me break? Is there a rule you'd have me follow? We can probably all ask God both. I'll ask God. It will probably be inconvenient. All right. We're going to close our service with worship and prayer because those are the most important things you can do when you come to church on a Sunday. And I'm going to lead us with prayer as we transition. So God, we're just so grateful for your love that you would welcome, I am so grateful, God, that I can follow you today, that you have welcomed me home instead of shaming me away. I just speak gratitude for all of us who have been rule breakers, God, 
Thank you for welcoming us home. Thank you for chasing after us when we avoid you with the rules, breaking them or following them. Thank you for coming to us with a robe and a ring and an invitation to the party. I ask that you would inspire faith in all of our hearts, God, to set aside the rules, to stop having to break them or having to follow them, and to experience your love. God, would you send us your Holy Spirit so that we can experience your presence, your living word today. Would you cause scripture to come alive? Would you cause our hearts to come alive? Would you cause our church to come alive? Would you cause our whole community to come alive, God? Help us to be a people of invitation and party. If you're on the prayer team, you could come forward now. We'd love to pray for you at the end of the service here. If you're carrying around shame and a knowledge that you just can't stop breaking the rules, we'd love to pray for you to be set free. If you're carrying around anger and resentment and a knowledge that you can't let go of the rules, we would love to pray for you to be set free. And by we, I mean some people who right now take it upon themselves to come up here to pray for people. Thank you, thank you. We got anybody on this side of the room? We do, thank you. Let's worship together, and the worship team will let us know when it's time to go. God bless you, friends.